Welcome to the Italian Financial Advisor podcast, exploring all aspects of your financial life in Italy. I'm Andrew Lawford with the Spectrum IFA Group. Today's episode is going to tackle what for many people may be the very last reason why you would consider moving to Italy, to start a business. Instead of going through masses of technical detail, I thought it would be more interesting to hear the story of someone who had actually done it. In fact, I was inspired to do this episode when I read about a fellow New Zealander who had set up a business near Milan making high-end coffee machines, and I was sure there was going to be an interesting story in it. It occurred to me that a New Zealander moving to Italy to build coffee machines would be the equivalent of an Italian moving to New Zealand to buy a dairy farm, a curious prospect to say the least. So without further ado, my guest today is Andrew Mayo, who hails from Wellington but has been living in Italy now for 13 odd years and has recently sold his interest in a company called Rocket Espresso, which as we will hear, grew from a couple of guys in a small office to a substantial manufacturing operation with over 60 employees. So Andrew is well placed to reflect on the challenges of doing business in Italy. Even if you are more concerned with pursuing la dolce vita than pursuing business opportunities, I'm sure you'll find his story interesting. As you might guess from his name, he does have Italian ancestry, with his grandparents having emigrated to New Zealand from somewhere near Sorrento. But don't think that this gave him much of an advantage when it came to doing business here. He was still very much a foreigner in that sense, and even today maintains that his Italian language skills need improvement. But let's hear him give some of the background to his decision to come and live here. The whole story is quite gets quite complicated, and 13 years later, I'm still telling it no better than I than I try, tried to the very first time. So, um, a bit of background: uh, my wife and I we had a very successful inner city restaurant in in Wellington, um, and alongside that, we had a little coffee roasting business. Previously, I'd been involved in a, another coffee roasting business that was actually the importer of the machine that we ended up buying into New Zealand. So Cafe Lafare in New Zealand, they were the importer for a machine called the ECM Giotto in those days. Um, and Jeff, who was the principal at Cafe Lafare, he uh, loved the product, didn't like the name of the machine, so he called it the Rocket. Few years after that, I'm not so sh- not really sure how many years he he'd been importing the machine successfully from um, Italy, and it, it, it had developed quite a good reputation in New Zealand. Anyway, he rang me up one day and said, "Andrew, I think uh, Frederick's having tr- financial troubles in Italy because we're not getting any machine supply anymore. Um, I think we should have a look at this and, and try and buy buy it, see what's going on." So. Um, I came over here and, and did what could very, very loosely be, be described as some due diligence, but, you know, in the real sense of the word, it was pretty naive due diligence, to be honest, and um, came over here and looked at it, obviously knowing the machine, looked at where they were selling the machine throughout the world and, and how they were how they were doing things and thought it was worth worth having a look at, you know, in, in order to buy. So we ended up buying the 
intellectual property to build this domestic machine out of the from the ECM, who was the, the original company's portfolio. Um, the the whole I guess journey about um, wanting to uh, or perhaps considering coming to live in Italy was the fact that. Um, as a family, we had a young son and we'd come over here, shut down the restaurant at Christmas time in New Zealand and for a few weeks and we'd come over here for on a couple of occasions and spent a few, spent a month or so um, touring around the country and we just loved it as a family. And I guess we were like, oh, how could, you know, how could we actually go and live in Italy? And then the opportunity came up and so it wasn't, for us it was like, oh, fantastic, you know, let's just go and do, go and do this. I asked Andrew to get into a bit more detail about how he handled what he termed his naive due diligence and asked him what kind of professional support he had in the process. Okay, well, we didn't really have any support, although we were very fortunate because because we'd been dealing with the man who, who owned the company, Frederick, uh, and in a way he'd become a, I kind of, I would say very loosely a friend, um, because we'd been importing machines into New Zealand. Um, and fortunately, um, part of the deal was his son would come and work for us. So when I, f- the first day I turned up to work in the office um, just outside Milan, um, Daniele was sitting there at, at the desk and we, we sort of knew each other, but we'd never worked together. He had been working for his father, so he, he had a, a pretty good understanding of the product. So that was very, very fortunate, really, because it meant he he knew a, a lot of the supply chain. Um, at that stage, we didn't have any employees, so we just bought the intellectual property, so the, the, the IP or the drawings for, for that machine, um, so we didn't have any staff. Um, and... And at that point, um, all the machines were built for us by a third party. So it was a pretty, it was an incredibly lean operation, basically two guys in a small office with two desks, and that, and that was about it. So as you've heard, the beginnings of Rocket Espresso were fairly inauspicious, and there were immediately issues to be dealt with. Because we had a customer base from Frederick of customers throughout the world that wanted to buy the machine. Um, so we had a potential portfolio of open orders that could be, uh, that we could then, if we built the machines, shipped the machines, we could we could fulfill that demand. The big problem was that because Frederick had been, had been having a bit of financial problems, as I say, a lot of the bridges had been burned. So a lot of the people that we then contacted to say, hey, you know, we've got the machines, we're back. Um, we're now called Rocket, but it's the same machine. Um, how many do you want? And it was like, mm, no thanks, <laughs> we don't want them. So there was a bit of a problem there because uh, Frederick had lost a lot of credibility, I think, and also there was this New Zealander who fronted up in Italy and what did he know about building espresso machines? <laughs> I think there was a little bit of hesitance, like, well, we'll pay our money, but this is all looking, re- you know, not looking good <laughs> from, from a lot okay. of dealers. So there was yeah, a lot of work. 
Was there any was there any reason why this business had to be in Italy? I mean, did you ever think, well, we've got we've got the IP for it. I could just go to somewhere maybe in Asia and and find a manufacturing partner, um, get the get the pieces done uh, at, at probably a, a, a you know much lower cost, and then just occupy you know my time with the with traveling around the world and marketing. Was was that ever a possibility, or did the company really have to be based here? I think when you look at, okay, Rocket evolved into a fully-fledged espresso machine manufacturer over, over the 13 years that I was there. Um, so, but primarily we built our reputation, I guess, on the domestic product that we that we built. Now, if you look at domestic espresso machines, there's you could start at something like an espresso capsule machine and go right through to what Rocket machines are today um, so and and there's a vast vast difference between entry level espresso machines and machines that are as equal of any machine in a bar and and quite often better than a cafe machine for your home so um, for as our class of machines ninety nine percent of the components are Italian manufactured. Um, so first and foremost, we've got to look at the fact that people kind of want Italian made at, at that, and, and there's more credibility with an Italian made machine. No one's really cracked it to date building a machine in the same class out of Asia at all. There's been a couple of guys trying. A lot of the componentry would have to come from Italy anyway. So it doesn't really, wouldn't really make a lot of sense to, to try building in Asia, and volumes are pretty pretty small, really, um, in comparison with Asian-made products. So, um, sure, when you're looking at uh, more the semi-automatic type home machines, like the numbers are the numbers are massive, um, and they will all be built in the in the east. But for our particular class, there's not that many machines in the class. There's not that many. The numbers aren't that great. So really, there's not too much advantage of being, there wouldn't be much advantage at all of being Asian. And I think made in Italy is a huge um, uh, stamp of quality, you know, um, for, for home espresso machines. I think what Andrew was talking about here is an example of something that is profoundly important for the future of the Italian economy. Niche, high-quality manufacturing still works in Italy, and there are numerous examples of this type of small-to-medium industry that are the lifeblood of the Italian economy. Next, I asked Andrew to elaborate on the building of Rocket Espresso and how they overcame the challenges we have already heard about. As you'll hear, in many respects, it's a classic tale of entrepreneurship. I guess... When you've got nothing, it's, it's very easy. You know, there's, 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 you know, there were no wage costs. Um, there was, there were really no overheads apart from buying material and paying for the machines to be built as and when we needed them in those initial stages. So there was, there was nothing really that could could go wrong. Okay, we started very very small and we we continued. We approached the markets that we knew, 
other people started to approach us. Very early on, we did one of the major trade fairs um, that's based in Milan every second year called Host. Um, we set up in the smallest possible booth you could buy, um, and we had a little wooden table and three machines sitting on the on the top of it. You know, unlike the big big competitors who had sort of you know pavilions of, of machines and um, we were we were just there and we got a, the orders order books opened up from that point and we just concentrated on what well, I concentrated because I was doing 99% of sales in those days we con- I concentrated on um, building the relationships with potential dealers I think that was one of the so fixing the, the, the burnt bridges, making sure that people were happy with us, they could rely on us, that we were reputable, that we're solid, and and just building up from there. So very that was very successful, even though the numbers were still quite small. We started employing people, and then very quickly, probably within the first year, we'd started our own production. We got rid of the third-party contractor, and we started our own production because we felt it was important to be building our own machines. Okay, and how was that experience? I mean, starting to, once you start taking employees on, then you start getting into, um, let's say, labour relations, if you like. How did you find that in Italy compared to Um, what you'd been used to in New Zealand? Well, I like to think that, well, I think compliance worldwide is all, you know, we all have to over-comply these days and in a lot of fields. I don't think – initially, I didn't really think Italy was any worse than New Zealand, just different, and, of course, I couldn't understand what was going on because my language skills didn't make it easy. Um, but when when you're small, a small business in Italy, it's very – it was quite easy. There was – until – I can't remember the number of employees now off the top of my head, but it was actually – we were actually had a lot of flexibility because we were under the certain number of employees that, that meant um, we had more, I guess, employee – responsibility um, so it wasn't that difficult we were just and the other very big advantage for us is as the ECM company that we bought them in the IP from was they were still continuing on but they were failing um, so they were on a slow decline as we were on a um, an increase so as he had to let staff go, we were fortunate enough that we could then employ them on our side. So we were actually employing people that had kind of worked for the same brand and, and knew what they were supposed to be doing. So it was a real, real advantage. And, and, and I guess they were probably quite happy to have a job at the end of the day if they were being let go at the, oh, on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Because I still think, you know, uh, factory production type work in Italy, uh, it's hard to find unskilled, unskilled uh, jobs for for a lot of people in the you know especially in the last few years with a lot of factories having to close down etc. Um, those workers do struggle to find you know you see some CVs where people have got some huge gaps in them um, of, of just time of being unemployed. Okay, and how many employees did you end up having at, at the end? Uh, we're just over sixty when we when I finished there. Yeah. Okay, so that's I mean that that's become quite a substantial business compared to 
what it was when you if you were talking about two guys and a and a desk. Yeah. Well, we had we in the end we had sixty odd, sixty two, four, something like that um, employees. We had two factories running, one building domestic product and one building commercial product. So yeah, we 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 built quite a nice brand in, in that time. Okay, and what what about the um, you know what about growing pains? Did you did you struggle with the administration side of it? Um, you know, Italy has a has a probably a terrible reputation, really, in terms of um, you know issues of uh, tax compliance and and things like that. I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that's overdone? Um, was your experience that, you know, you could you could get things done? It was just a question of, uh, you know, hacking your way through the red tape, as it were, or yeah. were, there, were there things that you just couldn't, um, couldn't bear? As I said, you know, having an Italian business partner did help a, a lot. Um, I, a lot of the time, I think it was it was just different you know you just had to get your head around that that um things like the the um gst the, or vat or eva um that we have here um return was unlike new zealand where if you are due a refund the government just sends you a check or here in italy you just get a credit um because um and so there's, there's things like that you have to work out so the first year of trading you have to pay all the eva up front but then you get it back in the form of a credit the next year and there's there's things like that that you have to account for they're not they can be frustrating but but there's nothing you can do about it that's just a different system and you just have to um cope with that i think certainly there's you know, you, you might wait from the local comune to set up a web shop. You might wait for a special number from the commerce department for, you know, two, three months while they decide what they're doing. There's a lot of, it's to me, the, the smaller stuff um, is the more frustrating stuff because coming from New, New Zealand, you just expect when you want to make a change to your business, you just do it, get on with it. And we're very... We're very proactive about how we grow our businesses in New Zealand. Well, you can't have that same degree of of um, speed. You can't apply that same degree of speed to an Italian business, I don't think. Um, and that wasn't helped by opening a manufacturing business too, where you've got such long lead times on bringing product to market. And that I still found that was... Uh, unacceptable, you know, time delays and bring product to market really, and that that was quite frustrating from a company that's trying to be trying to think globally and try trying to be progressive. I found that frustrating. Right, and were there, were there ever times when you thought that that um, you know these small frustrating matters that you're talking about was there ever a, an existential risk to the business created by these things, or was it? Are we just talking about? You know, it, it took you three years to do something that you might have wanted to do in eighteen months. Um, well, I, I, I guess um, I guess having to account for things like the the GST um, on on the first years of sales was was a big was a big impact to the to the cash flow. Um, you know, with twenty two percent EVA here, that, that's that's 
becomes a substantial amount of money, especially when you're trying to build a, a business which, after buying the IP, we were trying not to continually put money into it. We were trying to you know make it stand on its own two feet very very quickly. So that was that was quite tough, but not not really. I don't think there was anything that that stands out in hindsight that I go well. You know, if we hadn't have had to deal with that, we would have been so much better off. I think we were very fortunate that what we did was very successful very quickly. So we were continually seeing the results very, very quickly. Um, and I think that perhaps that clouds your judgment slightly too. If, if you're not seeing things um, progress in such a such a rapid manner then you probably get frustrated with things that are holding you up but not no not not really i don't have any i don't really have any complaints if i look at how business is done in italy i don't really think you know um i think there is a the country is has definitely has a high level of bureaucracy attached to it probably um the bigger you get the worse it becomes um, but initially, when you're small, I think it was, was pretty plain sailing. As you've heard, building a business in Italy is not mission impossible. But you can also hear in Andrew's story that there were several ingredients that contributed greatly to their success. Having a winning idea was obviously very important, but also the Italian business partner appears to have taken away at least some of the stress of navigating the Italian system. Next, I asked Andrew to imagine that he had been parachuted into the role of Prime Minister in Italy in order to get his thoughts on what could be done to improve the economic situation of the country. I think I think Made in Italy needs to become a stronger brand still than it is today. Um, I, I don't... I think... I think Made in Italy has... has I wouldn't say died a bit, but I don't think... Now you you might buy a, a coat or a jersey or whatever it might be from a major fashion, you know, one of the big fashion brands around the world, and quite often you, the label won't be made in Italy. So I think that's kind of diluted the made in Italy brand. I think I still think that's very very strong. Um, so I would strengthen that. I think um, uh, I think the the whole question of um, Government spending in this country seems to me, knowing not not really knowing, but from the outside looks just vast. And you know, every time you have to go to the local comune or, or a government office, you just see people sort of standing there, and you wonder really what what's going on in that office. Doesn't doesn't seem to be really very efficient. Um, I've been trying to get my citizen at, citizenship ship application going for probably it's taken three years I don't, don't seem to be any further on with it um, just goes around in circles continue and the, the other big thing is I think Italy is got a lot of got a lot of oh it's an export nation and by and large it's exporting manufactured goods we've got a terrible wage tax here so the the wage tax is about 48 percent so the the worker is not he's paid well, but the government takes half his salary. So 
Um, that means the worker on his take-home pay is very, very competitive on a global stage, probably, I, I don't know how we, that compares with some of the Asian countries, which are getting obviously higher in their, um, their, their salaries, their wage costs. But the poor worker might earn, you know, two, 3,000 euros a month, of which he gets 1,500 of that to take home, um, you know, and that's, that's pretty tough. Um, and I think if wage costs were slightly slightly adjusted, um, everybody could be better off, including the worker. This last point is quite interesting, because I was always used to thinking about earnings in annual pre-tax terms, whereas in Italy it's quite common to hear talk about net monthly salaries, which is misleading, both because of the high tax and compulsory pension contribution rates, and also because people are often paid for 13 or 14 months of the year, depending on the industry they are in and their type of work contract. Annual gross salaries can often be well over twice the net monthly figure multiplied by 12. Next, I decided to get away from the discussion of business and explore some of the more general aspects of living in Italy. I asked Andrew if he had had similar reactions from Italians that I get when they find out that I'm from New Zealand. When people ask me where I'm from, because obviously they can tell I'm a foreigner, and when I say that I'm from New Zealand, um, often I, I'm greeted with a, a, an incredulous look, and then they'll say to me something like, well, why on earth did you come and live here? You know, as if somehow I'd traded uh, paradise for hell yeah, paradise. To, to, to live in, in uh in Italy, and, and whilst obviously you know, New Zealand's a great country, I, I would, would never say it wasn't. I'm, I'm always amazed at quite how, um, or at least my impression is that quite how poorly Italians regard their own country. I just wonder whether you had a, have had similar experiences. Uh, uh, absolutely. I think yeah, most people think you've got rocks in your head, don't they? When, when they hear you come from New Zealand and now, now you live in Italy, they just cannot understand what you're thinking. But then, conversely, if you, if you turn it around, how many people, not as you well know, given the chance, they, they probably wouldn't move to Italy, but the idea, the dream of moving to Italy for a lot of New Zealanders is very, very strong, I feel. So a lot of people go, oh, we'd love to live in Italy, but you know, whether they'll ever do it, just like Italians will never move to New Zealand. But I think you know, it's... You, can't compare the two countries, can you? Um, they're just so vastly different in, in many ways, I find. In the same vein, I asked about the transition from his holiday vision of Italy to that of practical, everyday life. But it's one thing to to look at it, look at Italy whilst you're here on holiday, and it's another thing to actually come and come and set up and you know rent an apartment and and well, in your case, buy a business. And uh, I was just wondering how you dealt with the inevitable culture shock and um, and what you can tell us about that. Huh. I think we just, as a family, we just embraced it. We were just like, "Cool, we're here. Let's go. Let's get into this." You know, um, we just. We just, I don't know, we, I, I think, and it wasn't really rose-tinted glasses because we still feel like that about, about being here. Um, we really enjoy the place. Um, and I think everything was different. Everything was new. Um, and, you know, the first day our son, Felix, he was 10 when we arrived and I came home from work and after his first day at school and I 
said to him, well, how did that go? And he said, shook his head and said, well, I didn't understand a thing. So, you know, it's, but it was just like, it was, it was a big adventure. And I guess I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, with, with my wife, Nikki and Felix, that they, they both, you know, Felix was probably too young to, to have an influence on any decision, obviously, but Nikki didn't sort of get here after, you know, a month and go, oh, no, this is too, this is too much. Oh, sure. We got frustrated with, with Felix trying to assimilate into an Italian Italian school system, which is, uh, I don't think is particularly very uh, a great. So you said you sent him to a local school. You didn't send him to an yeah. international school. No, no, he started off, you know, full immersion. <laughs> um, so he did that, uh, and then he did his final few years at a at an international school in Milan. But we chose to, well, I chose to. The factory was on the. Um, eastern side of Milan, um, not far from Lenate Airport, really. And then where I chose to base us as a family was a place called Crema, which is further east. So we're sort of, we're an hour to, to Milan, I suppose, to the centre um, from door to door. Um, and it's, I describe it as a Tuscan village on the flat. It's quite a pretty town. Um, and in hindsight that really molded our lives here because um, if we were in Milan maybe Felix would have gone to an international school but it was quite difficult to get him from here to Milan you know um, uh, again perhaps there was a little bit of naivety on on my part um, you know but it was just like yeah we're in Italy let's let's make this work of course Anyone who makes the decision to live in an unfamiliar country must be naive to a certain extent, because if you did decide to move to Italy only after having understood everything about the place, you would never actually get here. To be honest, I don't think I've ever met anyone, Italian or not, who completely understands the country. Andrew had some interesting reflections on life in Italy and what he missed from back home. This falls into the category of you can't have it all, no matter where you choose to live. Ah, you know, it was fucking through Instagram the other morning and sitting at the um, table having breakfast with Nicky and I said, God, you know, I could do with a, a breakfast down at the, the, the Floridita's Cafe in Wellington as I looked at what they were putting on a plate. Look, I think what we love about Italy, well, what New Zealanders, you know, Antipodeans love about Italy is the fact is the tradition. We love that the, you know, the pasta is cooked the same way. We love that the mozzarella tastes the same. We love all these things. But and the, um, on the other side, that can be quite frustrating because we don't have this the spontaneity of Wellington, Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, London. We don't have that going on. I we don't. I just don't. You very rarely. I, I don't know if you feel the same, but you don't. You walk down the street where you live, and I'm sure it looks exactly the same as it did the day you arrived, by and large. You don't go, oh, somebody's opened a new cafe doing this. If they open a new cafe, it's doing exactly the same as the last guy was doing in there, by and large. There's, there's, I call it spontaneity of design, where you get a couple of young London kids start a pop-up in Shoreditch and and open the store selling great stuff. It may not be successful, but it's cool. And, you know, you just go, oh, good on, you know, good on these guys. And I just don't see that happening initially. You know, very infrequently you go somewhere and you see, oh, that that's really interesting. 
Um, but but I think, and that's as I say that what we love about it is the tradition of the country, and conversely, that's what sometimes you hate about the country is the tradition of the country. Now, as I've mentioned. Andrew has now sold his interest in Rocket Espresso, and I was curious as to whether this also meant the end of his Italian experience. Let's hear what he has to say. You've come to a successful, successful conclusion, shall we say, to the you know the business project that brought you here in the first place, and and so you know, are you going to stay? Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, I think that we we still enjoy it here. I. I would have planned to be in New Zealand for this the summer actually you know had we not have to have had to comply with a two-week government lockdown which doesn't really appeal but um, when I go back to New Zealand as you mentioned earlier you know it's a fantastic country it's it's um, but I feel I just go back into my life as it was 10 12 13 whatever years ago I just go back and if I go back to Wellington I see the same friends, fantastic. I end up having a coffee at pretty much the same cafes. I end up eating at the same restaurants. Okay, there's a few new places, but it doesn't really feel like I've, I've been away. And, and I just, I feel that my time here um, has allowed, I would be lost. I would just come, I'd enter back into Wellington and it would be the, the same place I, I left by and large. And I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. It's not that I'm, you go backwards. I think it's a lot easier when people um, move to another country and they're on assignment. You know, you've got a three or four year contract or whatever it might be. I think you, you don't really establish yourself. And it's very hard to put down roots because you always know your contract's going to be coming to an end. But when that's not the case, when you do it off your own back, you don't know when that end is going to be. So I think you look at life as this is now your home as opposed to this is my base while I'm on contract, this is my home and I live here. So um, the other big thing is our son, as I said, Felix was 10 when we arrived. He's now 24, um, 23. Uh, and this is his home now, you know, and it's like, okay, he, he should be old enough to be looking after himself, but he's an Italian boy after, after all, he'll live at home till he's 30. Um, so well, maybe, maybe 40 if you're lucky. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that, that for him at the moment, this is, this is home and we're here. So, you know, maybe in a few years we'll spend a little bit more time in New Zealand over, over the summer. I don't, don't really know. But at the moment, no, we still really enjoy being here. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed hearing Andrew's story. This was recorded in November of 2020, and personally, I find it heartening to hear such a positive outlook at a time when we are tormented daily by varying degrees of bad news. I'm sure, before too long, there will be a new chapter in Andrew's business activities in Italy. But in the meantime, please check out rocket-espresso.com to get a better idea of the business we've been discussing. So finally, thanks to Andrew Mayo for taking the time to be interviewed, and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, just Google Andrew Lawford Spectrum. Goodbye for now.